welcome. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at Church 21. If you're visiting today, I'd just like to introduce myself and invite you to connect with us. Um, if you're if you're visiting, especially, we have these connect cards that we keep at the welcome table in the back. We'd just get to love to know who you are. Um, but if you've been coming for a long time, we love seeing your familiar faces. Um, it's another beautiful day to praise the Lord. So um, I'll start off with our reading in scripture, and uh, then we're going to continue our sermon series that we've been going through on our rule of life, habits of intention for the gospel. So uh, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. That should be up here, I think. Um, so I'll read it here, and you can listen along. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it was written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Um, now, if you're anything like me, you might have heard those words come from your mother when she was telling you what she thinks about you getting a tattoo or even changing your, ha your hairdo or something like that. Your body is the temple of the Lord. Have you ever heard those words? Um, your body is the temple to the Lord. It matters what you do with your body is what Paul is saying here, especially in the subjects that he was talking about with sexuality and things like this and with food. Um, but it's true. Um, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. In our faith, uh, through faith in Christ, that is who we are physically. But all too often, we actually don't live like this. Uh, we Theoretically, we might agree with that, you know, okay, if I'm in Christ, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But what does that really mean? We end up actually treating our body functionally very different, like a, just a garbage disposal that you put things in and it processes things out. Or it's like this command center of pleasure and pain. And, you know, we just kind of listen to our body about what our body tells us it needs. Um, it's like this meme you can put up there if it's in the slides here. It says, don't forget to drink water and get sunlight. You're basically a houseplant with more complicated emotions. Um, if you've ever heard that said, it's, it's kind of silly. But look, if, if, we don't see, if, if we see our bodies inaccurately, then we're also going to treat our bodies incorrectly. That's the main point. It matters how you see your body. It matters how you see your whole self, your physical, emotional, and spiritual self. And especially in the marathon of life that we're running, this is a crucial issue for us. I mentioned a few weeks ago, um, I asked the question, how would you feel if all of a sudden, with no preparation, you had to run a marathon today? 
would it be 42 kilometers of grueling torture? Would it be 42 kilometers of somewhat of a graceful stride? Well, the difference comes down to how we prepare, right? Um, and it's kind of an illustration for this concept that we're preaching on as a rule of life. It's this intentionality that we have for the marathon of our faith. Paul uses that illustration over and over and over again about running the race that's set before us. And a lot of times, though, we, we kind of go at it haphazardly. But that's not the way that God has called us to live by his design. We're actually working towards what we're called to. And it's very wise for us with that vision and mission in mind for how God has created and designed us to be for us to steward the life that he's given us. That means to take account of it and take care of it. And that covers a whole range of subjects. And that's why we have this rule of life series where we go one subject at a time. And today we're actually not just theoretically talking about uh, whether or not you could run a marathon, but maybe in a more practical sense. We're talking about our physical bodies, but also not just our physical selves, our, our mental and spiritual lives in our physical body. And actually, some of us here have taken up running. Um, I know a lot of people here uh, go cycling and things like this. And I myself have taken up running, and a few of us are going to run a marathon in October. And I've learned a lot about stewarding my body and mind along the way if I want to succeed at that goal in the future. For example, I realized one day when I was deep into a 10-kilometer run that the chicken wings and ice cream that I ate the night before was not good fuel for my body the next day. And so then you put two and two together and you realize, oh, what I put into my body really matters. Um, you know, and just like that disconnect between, like, my favorite greasy, fatty foods and, you know, a long duration of physical exercise, there are also correlations between the things we invest in our physical lives and the effect it has in our spiritual lives. We really should fuel our body and soul with good things. And as Paul describes here in 1 Corinthians, we should see our bodies rightly and then treat our bodies rightly in light of the physical and spiritual realities that God has given us. Um, so we're in this spiritual marathon. We should steward our bodies. But we end up keep giving ourselves this proverbial junk food and wondering why is there this disconnect? Why don't I feel like I'm living the, God, the life God has called me to live? And so um, it, Paul even says in First Timothy, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And that's kind of what... Paul illustrates in this chapter in 1 Corinthians, he's saying spiritual life is so much more important than physical life, but they're not disconnected. He says, look, food is meant for the stomach, stomach's meant for the food. Um, but he says, God's going to destroy both of those. But he also says, look, the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God raised Christ from the death, and he will also raise us up with him. So that's, if the gospel has anything to do with our actual physical, mental, and spiritual lives. If Paul was right in saying that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, then we should not neglect our bodies, and we shouldn't either also just kind of begrudgingly tolerate our bodies, which we'll talk about. Um, but we actually get to glorify God in our bodies. That's the main point that we're looking at today is the privilege 
and honor uh, and joy that we have to get to glorify God in our bodies, but the disconnection that we sometimes feel with that, that calling. So today we're delving in the, into the subject of mind, body, and fasting as we, re, we rely on God to realign us with his design for us. So in a nutshell, that's where we're traveling today on um, body and mind and fasting. So let me pray for myself um, and, and for our own hearts and ears before we get started. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you, God, for your word. God, your word is living and active and um, sharp, Lord, to pierce us to the heart. And uh, that's what your word says about itself. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us today by your Holy Spirit, that you would use uh, even uh, my voice, God, to communicate your gospel uh, from your word, and that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear your, your love for us today and your call on us today to abide in you. So we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let me just set something up on here. And we'll get started. So we are created in God's image. This is something that uh, we fundamentally believe here in the church. We are created in God's image. This is rooted all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. And being created in his image incorporates uh, physical, mental, and spiritual realities. I'm going to keep repeating these things so that we keep remembering these things. We are created physically, mentally, and spiritually. Your body is valuable. And this is important to mention because you're not just flesh without a soul, as some are prone to thinking that, you know, we are just these meandering bodies, um, like this command center of pleasure and pain, and we seek pleasure, we avoid pain, and yada, yada, but we're not really a soul. There's, there's this, you know, energy that doesn't die. Things like this is, are some of the things we hear today um, that diminish the, the reality of our soul, our spiritual life. But we're not just a soul without flesh either. And that's something else on the other side of the spectrum is we could say, well, the spiritual life is all that matters, but your physical life, we're just going to ditch that one day. We don't really need to care about that so much. What really matters is our soul. And that's another extreme end of things where we devalue our body. And so we have to avoid both of those extremes um, because we are created interconnected physically and spiritually, totally interconnected. And that's a good thing. This is a good reality that we live in. Um, our physical, mental, and spiritual realities all exist not by accident, but intentionally for God's glory. And, and it's, it's amazing. And yet sometimes we, we don't treat it like that. And we end up taking this for granted. And that's a lot of times where sin comes in and kind of detracts from our experience of glorifying God in our body is when... Um, really takes advantage of this beautiful truth that we've had from the beginning of God's design for us. So Adam and Eve, they are the, 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 the forefathers, the, the, the first couple that, that God created in the garden. If you go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 1, you'll see the story of Adam and Eve and see them living in this state of integrity. Everything was good, but it was fragile. It was susceptible to the potential for death. There was this kind of probationary freedom. It was total freedom with an asterisk, really to enjoy it, but don't break it. This is the total freedom that Adam and Eve enjoyed, and we get to see into their lives this perfect health, perfect mental health, physically, mentally, and spiritually, 
and perfect food. God created a garden all around them, and they could eat from any tree in the garden except for this one. And I can't imagine how amazing that food would be. Um, I imagine that there would be fruits that taste like sushi or vegetables that taste like a Five Guys cheeseburger. Because I can't imagine that we could enjoy such good graces here in our fallen world and not have some kind of like precedent back in a perfect world. I can't imagine that sushi wouldn't have existed in God's perfect integrity. But that's a conversation for another day. But Adam and Eve, they were, they were perfect, they were good, but they weren't all-knowing. They were still finite. They relied on faith to obey and trust God every day, to obey his command, to eat from all those trees except for that one tree. And, you know, before they realized the death and destruction that sin would bring, they definitely took for granted all of that freedom that they enjoyed in their physical, mental, and spiritual uh, fullness that God had given them. That's where Satan came in and he tempted them um, through that fruit, tempted them to sin against God's command, and everything changed physically, mentally, and spiritually for us. That's the reality that we live in today. We still hold on to that good design from God and all the fullness that he has to offer, uh, but that sin comes in and it tempts us and it detracts from our experience of those things, physically, spiritually, and, um, and mentally. So on the subject of our, our physical lives that God calls us to live, like Adam and Eve, we are created and called to glorify God in our physical bodies. That's something that God has given each of us here, a physical body, and he calls us to use our physical body to glorify him and to enjoy him. But sin has made it such a begrudging task just to tolerate our body. I don't know about you, but sometimes we get, I get so frustrated with the limitations of my own body for different reasons. And we end up devaluing our body, misunderstanding our body, and misusing our body. Filling it with things that gratify our flesh rather than the spirit, which really doesn't solve any of our problems but only creates more. For example, we struggle with body image. Uh, We often neglect to love our body with this Godward gratitude for how he made us and who he made us. And then we neglect to care for our body here in the life that he's called us to. This is just one example. But it's amazing the way that God has created our physical bodies. We should not minimize that fact, that point, that the human body is so incredible. So here's a few examples of how God's word speaks to our physical selves. In Genesis 1, verses 27 and 31, when he created Adam and Eve, he, uh, he writes it this way, that God created man in his own image, mankind, in the image of God he created him, and male and female he created them. And then it says, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. So your bodies are very good. Everything that God created is very good. And God's work has not somehow been totally lost. Right? Sin has been introduced. It affects everything that in, an, in us and around us. But it doesn't detract from the reality that God made us very good. And it's not just, you know, proud to say that. It's in God's word himself. And um, King David writes this in, the, in Psalm 139, praising God, saying that you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
Right? That's the care, the level of intricacy by which we are created by God. And he says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And my frame was not hidden from you when I was made, being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So even David is saying how amazing it is. God, you care for my physical self. You created me piece by piece um, in his love and wisdom. And uh, so as amazing as every aspect of God's natural creation is, really the human being is the ultimate pinnacle of the beauty of God's creation. It's uh, amazing uh, so much so that God, having designed humanity, even became human himself. So um, I'd recommend this book to you by Sam Alberry. It's called, um, oh man, I forgot the title and I didn't write it down here. But it's um, about, uh, why does God care about our body? Uh, I'm, I'm just butchering it. But anyway, forgive me on that. But Sa Sam Alberry wrote this book. You can look it up. And he says this. I have to borrow this from him really to drive the point home. He says, at the center of the Christian faith is the belief that by coming to earth as one of us, Christ could die for our sins, rise to new life, bring us into fellowship with God, and begin the process of putting right all that's gone wrong. But at the center of that claim, tucked away where we don't always see it, is the notion that to become one of us, Jesus had to become flesh. To become a human person, he needed to become a human body, become a human body, not simply don one for a few years. He could, in theory, have turned up as a ready-made 30-year-old male prepared to immediately gather his disciples, teach about God's kingdom, and head to the cross. But really, becoming one of us took more. To truly become human, Jesus needed to become a fetus in the womb, a baby in a cot, a toddler stumbling about as he learned to walk. A teenager going through puberty. A fully grown man. It wasn't enough to have a body. He needed to truly be one. And Jesus' incarnation is the highest compliment the human body has ever been paid. God not only thought up our bodies and enjoyed putting several billion of them together. He made one for himself. And not just for the Christmas season. No, his body was for life and for far more than that. After his death, he was raised bodily. After his resurrection, he returned to his Father in heaven, also bodily. And when he ascended into heaven, he didn't just ditch his humanity like a space shuttle ditches its booster rockets. Becoming human at Christmas was not reversible. It was permanent. There is now a human body sitting at the right hand of God the Father at the very center of heaven. We can put up a, a slide if it's there that says this. Bodies matter. Jesus couldn't become a real human person without one. And we can't hope to enjoy authentic life without one either. That his body matters is proof that mine and yours do too. He became what he valued enough to redeem. And he couldn't come for people without coming for their flesh and without coming as flesh. So again, it sounds kind of selfish to say, but the human body is this amazing treasure that we get to steward, that God has designed and given to us. 
But the message of the culture, however, around us is kind of this ambient noise always um, reminding us of really some of the opposite truths or the opposite opinions, that we are random, not intentional, that we are mistakenly placed with gender and sexuality, that we are no more valuable or meaningful than a chimpanzee or a plant or a mushroom, anything else that we see around us. We've heard these things, um, and we must honestly not just point the finger at the problem out there, the problem is always with the culture, but we have to recognize too that in our own sin nature, we struggle physically. We struggle to believe that our bodies have been created very good and are meant to glorify God in our physical life. See, we can follow God, uh, we can follow Christ, we can deny these extreme characteristic positions that we see out there, that life doesn't matter, that the body doesn't matter. We can intellectually agree with Genesis 1 and Psalm 139 and still end up feeling like our body is unimportant or even burdensome. Our body image can be the source of stress and anxiety, depression, eating disorders, gender dysphoria, and suicidal thoughts. All of these things are in this realm of struggle that we can have. Our bottom line is our physical limitations. They frustrate us. And, and when we live in those frustrations, we have such a hard time seeing, why have you made me the way that you have, God? Why have you put me in this physical body? But at the same time, if we are handmade and fearfully made and individually made and purposefully made, then we should care for who and how we live in this body. We should care for how we've been made and who we've been called to, to live and to love. So this is where I'm going to point you to a bit of application for how we can actually take this concept of, of uh you know, God's value that he sees for our bodies and how we can take that and steward our bodies. So Stephen Machia, if I'm pronouncing that right, in his book called Building a Rule of Life, he recommends taking some time to honestly but positively review your current level of physical health and well-being. But to, to kind of assess where you're at, where God has called you to, how he's provided for you, and, and to think through with him a possible future preferred state of physical health and well-being, which we all have um, healthy goals. We should as we steward our bodies correctly um, as they've been created by him. But then to walk with God in implementing the goals that we have um, for stewarding the bodies that we're in. And again, it's a sensitive subject because, uh, look, God loves the bodies that we're in, and we don't always do that. And there's all kinds of mixed uh, feelings in the in this. But he, he says that, look, if we steward the bodies as we should, then we should rest our bodies. And that's where we preached on Sabbathing a few weeks ago. We should replenish our body with diet and exercise. We should renew our body against addiction and illness. And we should also release our body. That's releasing our body from temptations and releasing our body in freedom to God. So in our workbooks, which we have um, at the back table um, you might have them with you or at home, this uh, rule of life workbook. Uh, you can look at the questions that we have for you this week. How are you being a good steward of your body? 
Are there areas you need to change as it relates to caring for your body? Are your habits of eating, exercising, and resting satisfactory to what your body needs? Um, do you have addictions or habits that must be immediately stopped or repented of as they relate to your body? So our physical body matters because of the gospel, because God created us in his image and has called us to live not just in our bodies temporarily, but, um, but in eternity, then we must care for them today. But like Adam and Eve, we were also created and called to glorify God in our body mentally. So it's not just our physical health. There's also this huge component about our mental health. But sin has made it a begrudging task just to tolerate our mind. I don't know about you, but sometimes we just want to, like, can I turn it off? Can I kind of escape a little bit? Or That's where we end up escaping and distracting ourselves from the mental noise that we struggle with. When we devalue our mind, when we misunderstand our mind, when we misuse our mind, we fill it with things that gratify the flesh, which really doesn't solve any of our problems, but only creates more. Mentally, uh, we commonly struggle with presence, lack of presence, really, lack of focus, and we often neglect to care for our minds and steward what goes into our minds and how we nurture our minds. Um, but just as our bodies have been wonderfully made, fearfully made, it's also amazing that ways that God has given us the faculty of thought and knowledge and a vast range of emotions. It's amazing the way that God has made us for mental health. And Job 38, 36 puts it this way, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? God has. God has given us wisdom and understanding. And this is something that in our mental health, we get to steward that. We get to care for the abilities that God has given us. The computing power of our mind is just amazing. It's this God-given and complex thing. And, you know, while the mind is an amazing thing, it can also be a scary place. And that's where we talk about, oh, can I just turn it off for, for a day? Can I just, you know... Um, Ephesians 2, 2, verse 3 puts it this way, this complex nature of our mind. He says, Paul writes this, saying, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The mind has passions and desires. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He, he says it differently in Romans chapter 8. When he writes there, he says, To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So where we set our mind matters, whether that's in the flesh or the spirit. And the flesh doesn't mean body. That's a different term. Uh, the flesh is really our sin nature that Paul is referring to, not our physical flesh and blood. Um, he says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God at all. And then two more verses um, he mentions in Colossians 2, verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul is saying here, See to it that no one takes you captive. Takes you captive by what? By ropes and chains? No. Takes you captive by philosophy. You can be taken captive in your mind by empty deceit. 
he says here. But in 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says, but we destroy, what do we destroy? Do we, do we destroy walls? Do we destroy armor? No, we destroy arguments. We destroy arguments. We destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. How? We take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we must conclude from Scripture that our mind is a battlefield in and of itself. There's a battlefield going on up here in our mind. And God's word counsels us on the desires of the mind being akin to death and wrath and uh, hostile to God. And that if we don't take our thoughts captive, they will take us captive for Christ. So for us, I think that we commonly struggle with a lack of presence and a lack of focus. I was saying, I know I can personally relate. Um, in fact, I was talking with my friend Scott this week, and he said, yeah, you're really bad at this. <laughs> when I was talking about uh, lack of focus and attention, and actually this author, Justin Whitmel Early, he wrote this book called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. And he takes this concept of the rule of life, and he kind of contextualizes it specifically to our modern era uh, of technology. And so I've, I've learned a lot from this. For example, have you ever noticed how often we find ourselves talking to somebody, but we're really thinking about a dozen other different things? Our mind is in a different place. We struggle with this. We're, we're really trying to be in two places at once, and in so doing, we're nowhere at all. If you're not 100% present, then you're really not present at all. We were actually created by God to be you know, physically and mentally present, to be finite, to be where we are, when we are. Uh, I know we're struggling with it here. Uh, you know, a lot of people have talked about studying sermons and how they need to be shorter for our, our attention span today, and, and it's a struggle, and I acknowledge that. Um, but, you know, sin has really turned us from a people of presence into a people of absence. It's robbed us of this, this precious commodity that we have to be present to each other. That's a gift. And that's an amazing thing for us to be physically and mentally present. But sin robs us from that. It robs that commodity from us and turns us into people of absence, meandering around, thinking about where we're not and what we're missing out on. But aside from sin, harming our relationships, detracting from our presence, really our smartphones are not neutral in the battlefield of our mind either. The, the smartphones that we carry with us, they do so many amazing things, all of our technology. It's not neutral though. Um, think of all the ways we use our smartphones, not to multiply our presence, but really to fracture our presence. Think about you know the times we've been working while we're on vacation checking emails when you're on a date, taking calls when you're playing with the kids, interrupting dinner with news notifications, posting a conflict instead of talking to someone about it, taking pictures of people in distress or sharing them instead of helping them, or curating our whole lives on a media feed in order to be with everyone except the ones we're actually next to. This is just a snapshot I'm sure we can relate to with how uh, phones have kind of crept into our lives. And maybe you can relate to the family in this video, if we can put this up here. Um, my kids love this movie. I love it. It's very relatable. 
This is our last night together before Katie leaves, so let's savor this. How about we put our phones down and we can make 10 seconds of unobstructed family eye contact. Starting right. This seems. Put your phone down now. See, this is good right here. This is natural. No, you're allowed to blink. It's just eye contact. Look at Mont right there. That's the spirit right there, huh? Katie, it seems like you're not taking this seriously. What makes you say that? Put your phone down. Now. See, this is good right here. This is natural. No, you're allowed to blink. It's just eye contact. Look at Mont right there. That's the spirit right there, huh? Katie, it seems like you're not taking this seriously. What makes you say that? <laughs> it reminds me of a scene from really our own family. You know, the, the father's just saying, can we just have 10 seconds of uninterrupted eye contact? And it, he's like, yeah, this is good. This is natural. Anyway, our life is really defined by what we pay attention to. And our phones are not neutral at this. They, they are just constantly pulling us away from each other like the video shows. But this means that we have to do the hard work of governing our technology. Because it won't govern itself. And it would love to govern us. So we have to do that hard work. So one daily habit that uh, Justin Whitmill early suggests is assigning an hour of your day with your phone totally powered off, put away in a drawer. This can be a spiritual discipline for us today. It's kind of somewhat of a fast to just turn it off, not just silence it, not just put it in another room, but power it off. It's amazing the emotional response that you can feel just from doing something like that. But we must regain the presence that God has given us, created us to have, and to give to others. We must work in our faith to steward that presence and focus. Now, another habit that he suggests is developing, um, he develops this rule or this habit of scripture before phone. And this is so essential. You know, Brian preached on scripture and prayer a few weeks ago in this rule of life, and Dustin did as well. And that scripture has to have the first and best of our time in the day. But our phones so easily just attract us right, right off the bat. Um, and when it comes to taking our thoughts captive to Christ versus our thoughts taking us captive from Christ, our phone and God's word really, even if we have the Bible app on our phone, they're, they're just incompatible. They don't really help. Um, they don't help us in our relationship with God in our word. Um, with God's word, sorry. Uh, when we come to God and we come to God's word, and we, even when we start our day subconsciously, we're really asking ourselves two big questions as we, as we look at the day before us. Who am I and who am I becoming? Why do I matter? What am I doing today? These are kind of the sub, sub, um, subconscious questions that we're asking that God's word, God has lavished on us in his word the answer to who we are and who we're becoming. But to that same degree, our phones are just always trying to answer those questions for us. Who are you? Who are you meant to be? Who are you becoming? Why do you matter? Think of it this way. If we're not answering these questions, who am I and who am I becoming from God's word, there will always be other kind of morning liturgies, these religious um, habits that take that place and answer those questions for us. 
for not answering those from God's word, they will come from our phone and technology. So our work emails, for example, they take us from the good news of Christ's perfect work, and they give us a morning liturgy of self-justification. What do I need to do to make someone else happy with me? Right, how can I justify my existence in the world today? These are kind of some of the things we go to if we're trying to um, get on with business. The news updates that we see in the morning, the headlines, take us from the peace of a God who holds all things in his hands and exchanges that with a morning liturgy of fear and anger and anxiety. Social media takes us from the security of God's approval and gives us a morning liturgy of envy and vanity, looking at other people and comparing how many likes did I get and who's doing what. These things just pull us in a hundred different directions and they fracture us and, and our identity that we're supposed to find in Scripture. We're supposed to go to Scripture to find our justification and our grace and our identity in Him. But when we go to our phones before scripture, it's just that message is intercepted and it reorients our hearts subconsciously. All right, so I'm just saying that it's a good discipline as we, um, as we steward our minds to go to God's word before we go to technology. All right, to let God's word anchor us in who we are and who we are becoming. That we would be transformed by the renewal of our mind through God's word and scripture. So in your workbook, we can fill out these questions this week. How are you on guard and protecting your mind from deception and from lies? How are you pursuing the renewal of your mind with the wisdom of God? Are you aware how much time you spend weekly on your phone and your screens? What limits have you put on technology consumption for yourself or for your household? These are questions we, we should think through as we steward our mental health and our presence and our focus for God, that he has given us these things to glorify him in our body. Now, the third point, the final point in um, our stewardship of our physical, mental, and spiritual life is our spiritual, spiritual life. Um, just like Adam and Eve, we are also created and called to, by God to glorify him in our body spiritually. And again, this, our spiritual life is not separate from our physical life. So we glorify God spiritually in our body. And yet sin has made it a begrudging task just to kind of tolerate our soul. Just, to, just to, to live a spiritual life can be so um, abrasive against the desires of the flesh that it's wearisome, that it's tiring um, to be constantly in this battle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual realities. And we end up devaluing our soul. We end up misunderstanding our soul. We end up misusing our soul. And we fill it with things that gratify the flesh and not the spirit. And it doesn't answer any of our problems. It only creates more. So this is where at the beginning uh, that we looked at, Paul said, food is meant for the stomach and stomach is meant for food. right? And, but the body is for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. And whereas God will destroy both food and the stomach, he says God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. Right? So our physical bodies matter and how we live spiritually in our physical bodies matter. They will outlast food. They will outlast our stomach. Our body for the Lord will 
go on eternally with him in redemption. Um, so Jesus uh, explains um, the spiritual discipline, one of the spiritual disciplines through which we can uh, glorify God in our body through the discipline of fasting or through the act of worship in fasting. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, he talks about glorifying God in our body through abstaining from food, which was um, something that they all did in the Old Testament and the Jewish culture where Jesus lived. Um, and they would, in fact, fast two times every week, usually, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But Jesus tells his disciples that when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites do. You know, they, they make themselves all sad. They, they even disfigure their faces so that their fasting would be seen by others, that they would be seen as religious and holy. Um, he says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. He's saying, don't put on a show. Look normal. <laughs> that your fasting may not be seen by others. They wouldn't even have a hint to, to know that you're fasting that day. He says, but by your Father who sees in secret, so that your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. So remember, God created Adam and Eve. He created them in the garden. He gave them all the fullness of his very presence. He also gave them abundantly all the food from the fruit of the trees to eat from. And everything was pleasant to the sight and good for food. And so really, we can see from the very blueprint of creation, we were made to feast. We were made to feast. God put them in the middle of a feast when he created Adam and Eve. And he made us just like that. But we feast on the fullness of God. We don't feast to feed emptiness. We feast from the fullness we have already in God. Feasting to fill our emptiness isn't feasting. It's coping. But feasting from the fullness of God is actually worship. So spiritually speaking, we get our fill on God, and we celebrate that through feasting and through eating um, and enjoying good food. Um, and these are two of my favorite things, worshiping God and eating good food. That's why my life verse is Psalm 63, verse 5. It says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So it's amazing that God has put this verse together, that we can enjoy rich and fatty foods and also praise him all in one verse. But this also introduces some of the complexities of our subject on fasting. As much as God made food for our good, our love for food can, can actually get quite out of hand. right? Our love for food can actually be so spiritually out of place and, and not so hand in hand with God. So fasting is this great way to remind ourselves to feast on God's presence, that we're not eating to fill the emptiness inside of us, but we're eating and feasting because God has filled us with his love and called us to an abundant spiritual life in him. And we get to celebrate that through all the good things he's created in food around us. Um, but oftentimes, uh, fasting goes so up against our natural instincts because we're so used to um, just being just orienting our lives around consumerism, just what we can take in and what we can consume. Um, and it's not just about food, but other comforts and other impulses that, that we just gravitate to to fill the emptiness that we feel from sin. God made us 
to fully rely on him. Sin has left that emptiness in us because we've turned from him. And no matter who you are, we're all trying to fill that emptiness. And it's not just through food, it's through all kinds of impulses and comforts. But what we see in Jesus Christ is something completely different, that Jesus actually emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, it says in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus emptied himself. And that's about his incarnation. When God became man as Christ, he emptied himself. But as a man, Christ also emptied himself in fasting. That's where we see these verses in Matthew where Jesus is saying, when you fast, don't look gloomy, but fast to glorify God in your body. He emptied himself in fasting. So we, when we empty ourselves in fasting, we practice becoming like Christ. We practice becoming like him um, who emptied himself. And we're fasting because we long for him. We were created for him. Sin has deprived us of that, and we're longing for him. We're longing for much more than sushi. We're longing for much more than a Five Guys cheeseburger. We're longing for the wedding supper of the Lamb. We've been created to feast. And it shows in Genesis, and it shows in Revelation. We've come from a feast, and we're going to a feast. We don't need to fill our emptiness here on earth with all the little temptations around us. We are made to find our fullness in God alone. So when we talk about fasting as this means of grace, it's, it's this way that we can find that fullness in God here and now, in the present day. It, Matthew uh, chapter 9 writes it this way. When Jesus tells the Pharisees why your, why your disciples don't fast, Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He says, the days are coming. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus anticipated that we would fast as we long for him. Jesus expected that we would fast. It wasn't just when, when he's taken away from them, when the bridegroom's taken away. It wasn't just the three days between his, his crucifixion and his resurrection. No, it's, it's now. It's the time that we live in now between his ascension to heaven and his second advent here on earth. We're meant to fast and long for him. And it fills us fasting in an unusual way that the other means of grace don't always do. Um, Justin Whitmore early in that book that I mentioned, Habits of Purpose, he says, I know of no other way of life that can both acknowledge all that the Lord has done and still yearn for all that we desperately long for him to do. So if you're thankful for all the work that God has done in your life, that grace has come, salvation has appeared, he's, he's reconciled us to God through the cross. But we're still longing for reconciliation, we're still longing for restoration, then fasting is that spiritual discipline that connects those two worlds and says, thank you God for all that you've provided, and God I long for you more. I love you and I long for you. This is what fasting does. And I know that there's some here who can share amazing experiences with fasting and being filled in that unusual way um, with God's grace. So a little bit of application about what, what are we talking about when we talk about fasting. You've probably heard about fasting before, but statistically not many people actually practice the spiritual discipline of fasting on a regular basis. But at Church 21, 
this is such a valuable part of our spiritual stewardship, our, our life with God, our relationship with Christ, that we must fast, that, that, that we get to fast, right? That we should fast. And so at Church 21, we, we recommend fasting in regular intervals throughout the year. Um, it doesn't have to be twice a week. It can be once a month. It can be whatever you determine personally. But fasting is this connection with God and this longing for him that we don't want to miss. And it's, it's so clear throughout scripture that it's not just this optional kind of part of our, our life and faith, but it's really a, an important and a crucial part of our life and faith, as Christ explained it himself. Um, and what do we fast from? Some people fast from technology. I'm taking a break from my phone. Um, I'm taking a break from meat. I'm not eating meat this month. Some people take a break from uh, TV, from internet, from social media. There's all kinds of things like this. You can take a break from, th- from these things. Um, some people would say, well, that's, that's not fasting. That's just growing up. If you're taking a break from, fa- from Facebook, that's not fasting. Um, but then again, it is valuable. And we would say, yes, that's a good way to rely on God and to pull away from the things that uh, tempt us, addict us, and distract us. But really, the biblical um, definition of fasting is to abstain from food, to take a break from food in a regular interval um, for a portion of your day. And that could be several days. It can be part of the day. Um, It's really, there's a lot of flexibility because we're not legalistic about, oh, you have to fast for 24 hours or it doesn't count. Or God doesn't recognize it if it's not 72 hours. Um, There's value in our fasting, um, but we don't have to just get right into doing 72 hours right off the bat. You can learn to walk before you run. So something that we recommend that's a, a healthy practice is to go about your normal day, plan ahead to fast. So you're not just like, I'm waking up today and I'm gonna fast. That's not the way to start. You, you should plan ahead and, and go about your normal day. When you finish supper, say, okay, now I'm fasting. I'm fasting after supper. You go into your evening. You go to sleep. You wake up. You're continuing your fast. Fasting from, from coffee and from breakfast. Okay? And, and you go into lunch. I'm fasting from lunch. You go into your afternoon. You, you, you take those times that you'd normally be sitting for a meal, and you spend that time in prayer. You spend that time in God's word. And you're feasting on the fullness that we have in him. All right, and then you go through the afternoon, you prepare supper, and you say, I'm breaking my fast. Okay, this is a good way to just start fasting, is to, to, to finish your supper and to go to the next supper. And this kind of trains our bodies, our, our response, to at least uh, get used to fasting. Because uh, even uh, Martin Luther described it, that really our stomach is kind of like a spoiled brat. It's going to keep reminding you what it wants. All right, and in that first day of fasting, it's probably just, it's not really hunger, it's just appetite. It's just kind of cravings and, and things like this. Um, but it's very valuable for us to be fasting in, in long periods um, like this, even starting with a day like that. Um, as we fast, you'll start to see new cravings rise to the surface, cravings for God. You'll start to see new impulses of God opening your eyes to the needs in you and the needs around you. You'll start to see a lot of things rise to the surface, things you don't always like to see, you know, headaches, fatigue, irritability, things that kind of reflect on our own way we've, we've conditioned our own bodies. Um, but these impulses just remind us to rely on God more and more each time and each day. Um, but 
like I said, we got to guard against uh, sheer willpower, like, okay, I'm just going to do this. Um, I'm going to, like, do this as an accomplishment. We got to avoid legalism, like, uh, um, you know, that I have to do this in order for God to, to love me. Things like this we want to avoid. Uh, fasting is not a way to get things from God. Like, okay, if I fast, then he'll listen to me. God hears our prayers. All right, he does. But he wants our heart. That's what he wants. He doesn't want your empty stomach. He wants your heart to be full on him. And that's what fasting does for us. We feast on God's fullness. And here at the church, we fast together occasionally. Every Good Friday service, we end by recommending you to go and fast with your city group until the next day or until Easter, something like this. Or, you know, um, during the beginning of the pandemic, we made some concerted efforts for, to spend time in prayer and fasting. And throughout church history, there have been significant times where people fast together as a church or as a nation. So just as Jesus described, um, it's not that we must fast, it's not if we fast, but it's when we fast. It's this kind of subconscious expectation for us. As Paul says, um, to not be enslaved by anything. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So in our workbook this week, wrapping up here, uh, we can fill out that question. Have you incorporated fasting into your plan of discipleship? Why or why not? If you have never incorporated fasting into your own spiritual life, now is the time to do it. And I know Dustin has preached on fasting before in the past 6 or 12 months even. And I know we have at Church 21. And a lot of times, honestly, this subject can be like in one ear and out the other. It's, it's like me with, you know, on flossing. I, I don't floss all the time. I brush my teeth, but I don't floss. It's just this extra effort that I, I consider optional. You know, I, sorry, I know you're judging me. Especially my wife because she's a dental hygienist. And, uh, but I prepare myself every time I go to the dentist. It's like, I prepare myself for that lecture. Have you been flossing? No, not really. Well, you really should. Okay, thanks. See you in another six months. It's just, and we can do that in the church. When it comes to fasting, okay, I heard the sermon on fasting, right? We do that all the time, and it goes in one ear and out the other. Because we see it as optional. Um, and really, my word falls short. God's word is what stands forever. So don't take my word for it. Please spend your time in your Bibles and look at the rhythm and intentionality that God's people have through communing with him in fasting. Um, and what we'll find and what we see even from this uh, own example of where we, we hear about fasting and we, we just forget to do it. Life gets busy. It's a reminder here, I'll close with the gospel, that we can't do it on our own. We can't just hear the words today about stewarding our physical and mental and spiritual bodies and, and go out and say, I'm going to do it better this week. We will always fall short. We will always come up short. We will always forget. We will always neglect to do it, right? But what we see is that Jesus came and he did it perfectly. He lived the perfect life we could never live. He emptied himself for us to become man and as a man, he emptied himself for us in fasting and in sacrifice. Right, so don't go out there thinking, I'm going to go out and do better this week. We get to respond now in worship by saying, Holy Spirit, I need you. I can't do it without you. We're not meant to do it without him.